summer vacation is the perfect time to get to know the good old U.S. of A. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll get some ideas from the editors at Life. They've come up with a gorgeous photographic collection of iconic American destinations. In the hour ahead, we'll get their take on the scenic and cultural must-sees in America the Beautiful. And we'll get reacquainted with one of the great American road trips, U.S. Route 66. Whether you try to follow the old two-lane road all the way from Chicago to L.A. or just dip in here and there, Route 66 winds through pure Americana. This classic route combines quintessential small-town America, offbeat roadside attractions, apple pie diners, and our nation's love affair with the automobile. From fall color in New England to the golden cliffs of California to the turquoise waters of the Florida Keys, come along as we explore the color and the majesty of America the Beautiful. It's travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. We're enjoying the fantastic variety of scenic destinations in the USA in the hour ahead. The editors at Life have just released a gorgeous collection of photographs showing off the attractions across the USA. We'll get their take on America the Beautiful in a moment. And later, we'll road trip on the old Route 66. We're traveling America today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by the editorial director of Life Books, Robert Sullivan, and we're talking about this new book, America the Beautiful, A Photographic Journey, Coast to Coast and Beyond. Robert, thanks for joining us. It's nice to be with you. First of all, Life has decided to celebrate America with photographs. What's the mission of this book that you've put out? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, We do these kinds of books, nice, you know, photo travel books, if you will. Uh, That's one of the kinds of books we do every so often. And it's not an accident that this comes out at this point in time. We were talking around the office about, you know, there's a lot of divisiveness in the country. There's a lot of arguing going on uh, right now and always, it seems. And, um, we thought this would be a nice time to do a book celebrating the country. And we just started kicking around the phrase America the Beautiful, and the book grew out of that discussion. And since life's stock and trade is to deal photographically, it was pretty easy to do. I mean, it's easy to celebrate this land when you start looking at it. When you say that, it's so true. Last night, I just spent a wonderful evening just paging through this book, and it was like I was traveling, and there was no question about it. There was no debate, no nothing. It was just... We live in a beautiful country, and it was great to take a moment and just celebrate it and to be thankful for it. I like the, uh, uh, you have a quote in there, to contemplate these photographs is to travel in the mind to these wondrous sites. It's to visit not only visually, but also emotionally. Yeah, I think that's an inherent power that a still photograph has, that contemplative realm that it brings you into. I mean, I'm not dissing uh, video footage here or anything like that. Uh, That certainly has its own power. But the still image has not gone away. People like to look at a still photograph. They like to drink it in. and, And especially, too, in this age of digital photography, when everything can be tricked up, I think one reason they come to a life book is they know that whatever they're looking at is really what's there. So there's no tricking up, huh? We're not going to goof around with the photographs. We'll color correct them, uh, yeah. you know, to make sure that they match reality. But no, we're not um, putting an extra president on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> color correcting is uh, saturating the colors, but not going beyond the, the colors you'll see on the leaves in the fall or something. Right. It's matching the natural colors. Um, sometimes, you know, film can show something that isn't there, and we will fix that up. But we don't, you know, we don't take blemishes off movie stars and... Uh, right. Now, you've got quite an archive of photographs to draw from for this. Is this mostly from the uh, life archives that you've put these photographs together, or did you send out photographers to capture it for this purpose? We didn't have them shoot for this book necessarily, but a lot of the photographs in the book were shot originally for life. A lot of them are from the Time Life Picture Collection, as you you mentioned. But also, um, Bobby Burrows, our um, picture editor on these books, has been with life for, she'll shoot me for saying this, but for more than 40 years now. And she knows all the photographers in the country, and they know her. And she knows what they've got, where they've been, you know, who might have done this well. And so once we have our list of places, she knows where to go to to bring in the best stuff. And you even mention in your book you're not showcasing only the nation, but also its finest photographers. Yeah, and actually we broke out three of them in what we call interstitial chapters in the book, 
because they have shot a place so well and so often that we just gave them their own portfolio. And that was uh, Joel Meyerowitz's vision of Cape Cod, uh, Michael Melford's vision of Hawaii, and the great Ansel Adams's uh, vision of his beloved Yosemite, where he actually lived as well as, as shot. Boy, to use Ansel Adams' photography for Yosemite just seems to make sense, even though uh, his work is very old. Yeah, but it's still vital. I mean, it's so... It's tremendous, his shots of Yosemite. But, you know, when we went to put that portfolio together, we wanted to let people know that Ansel Adams is not just the awesome shots of Half Dome and of El Capitan. And so we have the quiet moments in Yosemite as well, you know, up close. Um, he had that, you know, he used the big camera, but he uh, he was not just a Wagnerian, you know, when he was shooting. He was a poet. Uh, he could do anything with a camera. He was a pianist. He was a great pianist. He thought he was going to be a professional musician when he was a boy. I really think there's a, a great deal of music in his uh, photography. And that reminds me, there's beautiful um, text accompanying the photographs, giving an insight into what we're looking at. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Robert Sullivan, who's the editorial director of Life Books, and we're talking about the latest life production. This is America the Beautiful, a photographic journey coast to coast and beyond. Robert, uh, let's get right down to it. Let's do the top 10, and then we'll talk about some reasons you chose them and so on. But but let's just go down the top 10. Number 10, the Great Beach at Cape Cod. Why did that make the top yeah, 10? Yeah, the Great Beach at Cape Cod. Um, the stuff in the Northeast that we chose, and this is representative, it really ties us to our heritage, the old country. And if it's been preserved as well as the Great Beach has at Cape Cod, then it's it's worth walking. It's worth going there and, and walking in uh, Thoreau's shoes and thinking what he was thinking about back then. And, and, and walking the Great Beach in the off-season is really a journey into the past. It's really quite marvelous. Okay. Number nine, Yosemite. You know, I've been there many times, and it, it's unavoidable. The grandeur of Yosemite is almost unmatched. Fair to say. I think Yosemite has just got to be the, well, you can't say the greatest park, but what an opportunity to appreciate nature in America. Number eight, the French yeah. Quarter in New Orleans. The French Quarter in New Orleans, we wanted to let our readers know that at least parts of New Orleans are back. The French Quarter is back. The restaurants are open. And what we are suggesting here is New Orleans needs us. Well, that was not dictated by what was the most uh, spectacular site then, uh, visually anyway. So you do have different priorities in your selection. Yeah, it's not just visual. No, we actually have we have architecture in here and falling waters. Right. Um, it's it, w w What we're saying is beauty. Um, yeah. So it's not yeah. just... It's scenic beauty. It's it's beauty. Cultural beauty. In, by any definition you choose. All right. Number seven, the Grand Canyon. Well, the Grand Canyon, like Yosemite, I mean, it is, it's just inescapable. When you think about the Grand Canyon, everybody knows it's an awesome American place. You can go throughout the world, and there's no canyon like the Grand Canyon. There's nothing, there's no etching like the Colorado River has etched that gorge. Wow. Number six, Big Sur. Big Sur in my estimation, is the greatest drive in America. Uh, you drive down the Pacific Coast Highway there, Route 1, and you're looking up at the mountains on your left and down at the cascading surf on your right, and you really you, you can't keep your eyes on the road. It's a very dangerous mm. business. It's mm. just so stunning. And in a country where road trip is sort of you know right in our DNA, I guess you got to have a great road trip on the top ten. Right. Number five, Gettysburg. Yeah, we've got a couple of very nice sites in the book that are war sites, uh, Gettysburg and Concord, Massachusetts, uh, where the shot heard around the world was fired for the Revolutionary War. The reason we put them in and the reason Gettysburg's in the top 10, they do a marvelous job with their monuments. It's almost unassuming. Gettysburg is a very, very pretty place. It's a nice town. And then you can hear the, you know, the echoes, the echoes of the gunfire. And we wanted to put it into the pivot the country turned on. Unassuming, yeah, because, I mean, i, I got to say, visually, it wasn't that much. I mean, it's a beautiful shot, but it's a subtle sight, and, and you go there and you feel not just visual grandeur, but you feel roots into our heritage and, and the struggles that we've had to keep our nation together. Yeah, the, the, there's a seriousness about Gettysburg. Yeah, number five on the list. That's interesting. Number four, the Florida Keys. The Florida Keys, uh, it's another sensational drive, uh, like Route 1, out to the Keys. But the thing I like about the Keys is how they're all different. You think a place is the same, but some of them are still kind of beach bum and a little ragtag, and some of them are, you know, all divers now. And then, of course, you got Key West, which has the party element, but also the quiet element. You can find anything in the Keys, and people don't know that. I'm looking at the shot of the Keys, and it's like a tropical, lush 
atoll without a lot of people on it. Looking at the water anywhere in the Keys is just an unbelievable experience. Oh, it's gorgeous. And as you said, it's a road trip. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Robert Sullivan, and we're talking about America the Beautiful. Robert, the top three sites, according to Life magazine. Number three, Hawaii's volcanoes. Hawaii's volcanoes. Uh, we put that in. It ranked so high because it's so wonderfully weird. Um, to go out there and walk the volcanoes is really to be affected by what it is that is at work in this world. You know, what made us grow? I mean, you know, the Hawaiian Islands are growing constantly. There's a yet another Hawaiian Island uh, still underwater that's working its way up. I would suggest, too, if any of your listeners go to volcanoes, uh, sure, take a guidebook, but uh, buy a copy of Mark Twain's Roughing It and read his account of walking on the volcanoes. It's just like that today, um, except none of us can have that kind of uh, humor about it. It must have been fun for you and your editorial staff to debate these different sites and add your own personal take to why one would be better than the other. It was. It got kind of hot at times. Uh, but, <laughs> I bet uh, it did. But, but, but there are some personal favorites in there. Um, it's, uh, you know, e- each of us got a, one or two, I would suggest. And, uh, you got your own favorites. Yeah, one of mine is, is Squam Lakes, New Hampshire. Uh, it's what an old New England lake should be. But even though you're the editorial director, it didn't make it into the top ten. It did not. We're going top two. Uh, second most spectacular sighting, according to Life Books, of course, Yellowstone. Tell us about Yellowstone. Yellowstone National Park. And the reason that ranked higher than, um, in our estimation, the Grand Canyon or Yosemite is is very particular reason. Back in the 1800s, when Yellowstone National Park uh, was made a national park and was set aside and preserved, it was not only a place, it was an idea. There were not only no national parks in the United States at that time, there weren't any in the world. So Yellowstone was a concept. It was a society saying, we should save this land. And so Yellowstone's that high uh, because it represents everything that came afterwards uh, from this very good idea of setting aside land uh, that we can all enjoy. And really, uh, that's the bedrock of a book like this. When we're celebrating the the, the beauty of America, that's what we're celebrating. So beauty is more than just uh, the the visual aspects. Of course, Yellowstone would, would be magnificent visually, but it also has that powerful concept. Right. The number one site, according to Life Books, in the entire United States our capital, Washington, D.C. That very obviously is that it's, a, it's the beauty of an idea. It's the beauty of, you know, if we're going to be celebrating America in this book, we're going to be urging all of our readers that in their lifetime they should get to Washington, D.C. They should get to the Smithsonian. Look at the steps of the Supreme Court building. Look at the White House. Uh, think about it. Think about Washington's monument and visit Lincoln. The Smithsonian's got a very nice zoo as well. Um, there are things to do in Washington but that's not what we were about here was the amusements as much as getting in touch with what it means when we're talking about America the Beautiful. All right. So what parts of Scenic America are your favorites? We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. We'll include your suggestions as we continue with Robert Sullivan, the editor of LifeBook's new America the Beautiful, on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Soy Robert Wright, un americano viviendo en Argentina, y yo viajo con Rick Steves. That's Spanish for, I'm Robert Wright, an American that lives in Argentina, and I travel with Rick Steves. 
soy Robert Wright, un americano que vive en Argentina y viajo con Rick Steves. Muchas gracias. <risa> Thanks for coming along today as we explore America the Beautiful on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Our guest, Robert Sullivan, is an editor at Life Books. They recently released a photographic essay of favorite destinations across the USA. Tanya's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Tanya. Yes, hi. Have you got a favorite site in America that you'd like to lobby for? Well, there are quite a few, actually. We drove through the whole country, and there are quite a few. I guess um, Lake Tahoe and some places in Oregon and Arizona, and my favorite is upstate New York in the fall. Robert, did any of that make the cut? Uh, almost all of it. All right. <laughs> um, certainly in Oregon, we have the Oregon uh, wine country. We have Lake Tahoe's in the book. It's one of the hundred. And in upstate New York, you know what we put in? and it's just gorgeous in the fall, we put in uh, West Point. Um, There's nothing quite as glorious as going to a a West Point football game in the autumn and go there early, get there in the morning, and watch the uh, cadets parade on the parade ground all morning long with the fall foliage in back of them. You know, it's as inspiring as as you can possibly get. You know, that, that point where West Point is on the river... Uh, was selected first uh, by George Washington, interestingly enough, during the Revolutionary War as a strategic place um, to intercept any British ships coming down the, uh, hmm. coming down the river. Um, and then it later became the, uh, the academy. Now, part of the fun in this book is, is your uh, basic rule that you'll leave no state behind. Every state has at least one uh, spot on this top 100. Is that right? That's correct. Tanya, you're, you're from Georgia. What would your nomination be for, uh, for your state? Well, I'm originally actually from Albany, New York, but we moved to Georgia a few years ago. Um, do I have to choose just one? It's so hard because I've seen the whole country, and there are so many beautiful places. And I think the amazing part is to see how places change from state to state. And that's something I always tell people if you're flying to some beautiful location, you really don't see how, you know, how it changes. So for me, the, the most pleasure I got from traveling is to see how states, how terrain changes, how scenery changes so dramatically from one state to another. That's right. Robert, uh, you were going to mention something about how you cover every state. Yeah, that was an idea when we started the book. We said, let's see if we can get one from every state. And we said, you know, if we're shoehorning stuff in, that's lousy. Let's not do it. You know, let's give up on that idea. Uh, but the the fact of the matter is every state does have at least a few glories that are worth thinking about, worth looking at, and certainly worth visiting. Um, so it wasn't hard to do. What what became hard to do once we were giving away 50 places like that was in the other 50, uh, you know, how many are you going to do in Alaska? How many are you going to do in California? I um, noticed California got, was, what is it, California got 11 and Alaska got 6, whereas yeah, most I mean, states got one or two, yeah. I would recommend Sedona, Arizona, it's it's the most beautiful site. That's I've in ever there as seen. well. Sedona is in there. You could, have, you could have written the book for us. <laughs> That's great. Hey, Tanya, thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. We have an email from Matt in Chicago, and Matt writes, I may be biased, but I've lived in four other cities and visited most of the others, and none offer the character, culture, and livability as Chicago, Illinois. You can do the tourist routine with the Sears Tower and the newly updated Millennium Park, theater and shops on State Street and Michigan Avenue, and so on. But to experience the city as a local, uh, you get into the city's neighborhoods. Each has its own feel and most likely settled by a different ethnic population over the years. Uh, well, there's a there's a case for Chicago, Robert. Well, we we've got something in Chicago, um, in the city itself. Uh, Wrigley Field is what we chose in Chicago. It's uh, and I'm getting grief back home. I'm originally from Massachusetts, and I'm a big Sox fan. And they said, "How could you not choose Fenway?" <laughs> and there are a couple of reasons. One was um, the fact that you can get into Wrigley Field. I mean, the Sox are basically selling out. You know, there are 81 home games before opening day these days. It's hard to get into that park. So if you're visiting Boston. Uh, you got to go to StubHub or something and pay outrageously to get into the park. But Wrigley's charm, and I've been there several times, is singular. And there's something that I've always thought was a lovely metaphor for the passing of summer. As baseball drifts through the summer, the ivy on the outfield wall at Wrigley grows in, and it gets thicker as the season goes on and sort of progressing just like the game is itself. 
And um, mm. I've always sort of liked that. And I, I like everything about Wrigley. Uh, and so our Chicagoan does have uh, something right in the city in the book. And that gets back again to this America the Beautiful concept. A beautiful thing about our country is its love of baseball, and it would just make sense to uh, feature one of the great parks. Yeah, we actually even have a golf course in the book, um, Pebble Beach in California. I mean, it's we're not saying that Pebble Beach is the best golf course in the whole world, but astonishingly, one of the great golf courses in the whole world, and that's Pebble, you can play. Uh, you, you know, you mm-hmm. can't play it for free. It's pretty expensive, but you can actually get on. Now, you can't... You can't go play Augusta National. You can't go play Shinnecock Hills, uh, but you know, in these other sites of the U.S. Open. But you can play Pebble, and it, it's got a grandeur that uh, that is really, really stunning. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Robert Sullivan. He's the editorial director of Life Books, their newest production, America the Beautiful, a photographic journey coast to coast and beyond. It's a beautiful coffee table book filled with photographs that celebrate the 100 most spectacular sites in our great nation. Robert, you've had to uh, really do some tour guide kind of um, decisions and and, uh, have opinions and be a little bit subjective. I noticed that some of the uh, obvious places, Napa or Nantucket, didn't make it. And uh, your comment was some places have grown beyond what they were legendary for. And you've put in other sites that would fill that little spot that maybe the Napa Valley would have had. Talk about that. Yeah, we did. We were suggesting in the book that Oregon Wine Country, a drive-through Oregon Wine Country, is a bit like you know what Napa was 20, 30 years ago. And similarly, Block Island, which belongs to Rhode Island, but is out there with the three islands, you know, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and Block Island. It's sort of the, the forgotten sibling there. It's a marvelous, marvelous place. It's a wonderful mm. place for bicycling. And it's just not as jammed in the summer as, as the other two. I mean, it's certainly busy, but uh, in, in the off-season, it's just glorious, absolutely glorious. And, of course, this is subjective, but that's what's fun about this. Um, for instance, I looked through there, and I thought, I don't like Santa Catalina. I went out there, and I thought it was pretty boring, but you guys put it in. <laughs> well, I went out with the, when when I was um when I was dating the woman now my wife we had a wonderful day out there. There so you go. It's your personal experience on Santa Catalina. And I went out with no wind in a sailboat. Well, sometimes too there's there's an extra story that we can throw in there, Rick. You know that gets them over the hump. And the thing I loved about Santa Catalina after I started looking into it uh, was the bit about the the buffalo herd that was brought out there ah. for a movie shoot? You know, like half a century ago. It's just right off of Los Angeles, right? Yeah, and yeah. And they were shooting, buffalo there. I guess, a Western. And the buffalo stayed. And now there are a whole bunch of them. And they're in the middle of the island. All right. Now, uh, you, you chose uh, Crazy Horse Memorial over Mount Rushmore. I thought that was interesting because, you know, this is kind of a red, white, and blue celebration of America. And you don't have Mount Rushmore. Well, again, it was the story behind it in that the, the guy who started the Crazy Horse Memorial, this this, you know, work of passion for him worked on Mount Rushmore. And he heard at the time when he was working on it that there were Native Americans in the area thinking that something like that should be done for them. And so he did. So we talk about Mount Rushmore in the write-up for the Crazy Horse Memorial. We put in this history. Um, but that just seemed like a marvelous American story. And of course, too, it's not finished, which makes it kind of cool that the crazy you know, horse we memorial. can talk about yeah. this. Yeah, where you can talk about this thing that's, you know, outsized, some might say outlandish, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yet ongoing. It's a, it's, this, it's a crazy idea, and it's still going on at, a, at its own pace. And would anybody, for instance, have, uh, when you discussed this, advocated the notion that, well, Mount Rushmore is uh, desecrating Indian holy ground, so we shouldn't Well, yeah. It. Well, you, in, in the write-up, we point out that Native Americans, Indians, prominent ones, too, uh, have taken the position, some of them, uh, that Crazy Horse is desecrating sacred ground, and that Crazy Horse himself would have been appalled by such a thing. Yeah, um, well, I- interesting point. I mean, we're not just saying that everything is, you know, perfect. Um, some of these things are very interesting, and they're certainly interesting to think about. And it stimulates conversation. We love our nation. We've got more than a hundred greatest sites, that's for sure. Uh, have you enjoyed the feedback since the book's been out? And uh, what, what sort of uh, comments have you heard from people? The feedback's been great. I mean, mostly people have been just talking about how how beautiful it is. Um, the thing that has been in a couple of the reviews, uh, which I I liked when I saw it, and it's been again more than one because this is really something we were hoping for and 
trying to do and and is they just say these photographs aren't just calendar art, you know? It's not just like a bunch of postcards. And I think that's Bobby Burroughs's eye, you know, our photo director and right. Richard Baker, our creative director, his eye. I mean, we just, you know. There is something mystical about the photographs. They take you somewhere. They tell a story. You want to put photos in that are that are beautiful but, but that are more than that, that are, you know, considered part of the photographic art, not just a rendering of a place. We have Susan on the line in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi. Do you have a comment for Robert here? We're talking about America the Beautiful. Um, you know, I'm originally from England, and um, I've seen some beautiful scenery, of course, in England. But over here in America, I think the most beautiful place that I've seen is uh, going along the Pacific Coast Highway in California. Yep. It's absolutely breathtaking. Um, we went there. We went through... I think it's Monterey and Santa Barbara, and we saw the Hearst Castle. Um, it's just beautiful. Yeah, that's that certainly made the book, and it, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was, what did we say, number six out of 100, so Big Sur. And the, oh, wow. And so it's uh, good. All right, Susan, hey, it must be fun from uh, an English uh, background to come and, uh, and explore the United States. Oh, most definitely. All right. Thanks for your call. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. I know. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today it's America the Beautiful. We're joined by Robert Sullivan, the editorial director of Life Books, talking about their new coffee table photo essay, America the Beautiful, a photographic journey coast-to-coast and beyond. Debbie in Albany, New York, emailed us, and she writes, The most stunning place in America? Vermont, western Massachusetts, and upstate New York at the peak of foliage season. Every tree a different color, every hill a marvelous multicolor explosion of beauty. There's nothing quite so breathtaking anywhere else on earth. Robert? Well, she'll like the photo we have in there of uh, of Stowe, Vermont, then. I grew up in Massachusetts, and uh, I tend to agree with her. I mean, I think, you know, the way New England holds its breath every year, waiting for foliage season, you know, and you don't want to miss a minute of it. It's really sensational. So for the wonderful colors of fall, you've got Stowe in Vermont. Yeah, we do. Candace in Tumball, Texas writes, The national parks need American citizens to support them to maintain our few remaining wild spaces. One of the best is in the Rocky Mountains, especially in Colorado at the Peak to Peak Corridor, Estes Park, Allen's Park up Highway 7, and into Rocky Mountain National Park, riding over the Continental Divide on top of the world, looking down on eagles, hunting over alpine lakes, valleys, and pastures. Bring the children to participate in the park's classes and seminars to learn more and get close to the real, original wilderness of America and its small towns and communities. Just like you, Rick, show us the real Europe. When you know this place, you will care about keeping it healthy and intact for all of America. Wow, that's a nice comment. (laughs) Isn't that nice? That's just appreciating our natural wonders. Yeah, and I, I I totally agree with her, and that's that's part of the impetus for doing a book like this is to is to get people to feel that way. And her favorite there on the on the Great Divide is uh, is also in the book. I noticed uh, you had the Great Divide, and in this whole idea of stewardship with this beautiful nature we've been blessed with, I think heightening awareness of that by a, a book that celebrates it with such beautiful photographs is a beautiful, beautiful initiative on the part of uh, life. When we deal with places in the book, um, like the Everglades, for instance, that are under pressure, um, in the write-ups, we talk about that. You know, the book doesn't, we hope, uh, turn a blind eye to that situation. And if you like a book like this and want the country to stay like this, you have to pay attention. I've been joined by Robert Sullivan, the editorial director of Life Books. We're talking about their newest book, America the Beautiful, A Photographic Journey Coast to Coast and Beyond. Robert, you've been in this process from beginning to end. In retrospect, what were the joys and and the discoveries for you? Well, the joys of doing the book uh, were in uh, revisiting in my mind's eye places that I'd been to that really moved me. The great, great places that everybody knows, like Grand Canyon or volcanoes, or I've been lucky enough to get to some really strange remote ones like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, but then also just sitting on the dock on Squam Lake, you know, with my kids and just looking out at the loons, you know, um, the the quiet moments, too. So revisiting where I've been and then also learning about places. I mean, I've made a life list out of the book. There are places in the book I haven't been to and I very much want to get to, even such as, you know, Bellingrath Gardens. I, I you know, I, I, I 
don't know it, but now I feel like I know it and I want to get there. Um, never knew about it before. It's a wonderful love story behind its founding. And, and then there's the gardens themselves. So there are obscurities that I now want to visit, uh, but whenever I flip the pages, even now, um, and certainly when I was working on it, it's nice to revisit where you've been before. Yeah, it's very nice. The whole idea of uh, stoking your your life list with some great places in our own country got me thinking about uh, hitting the road and leaving my passport at home. Not a bad idea. <laughs> Robert Sullivan, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, best wishes with your work and for America the Beautiful. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I hope our paths cross again sometime in the future. All right. Thanks very much, Rick. Have your travels brought out the poet in you? Share your stories and your impressions at Travel with Rick Steves. Write up a short essay describing your hometown. Or send us a haiku for a poetic snapshot of your travels. Details on this are at the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here's some recent haiku about American travels that we thought you might enjoy. Jessica McLennan listens to us on Cincinnati Public Radio. She sends us two haiku she wrote while vacationing at the shore in South Carolina. Grandpa, little girls, digging in sand at the beach, building memories. And this one is titled Sand Fleas. Jumping high, biting, hiding in sinks and bedsheets, our vacation curse. And Joel Stewart lives in Portland, Oregon, and hears us on OPB Radio. He writes that he moved away from his home state of Oklahoma eight years ago after finishing college and has since lived in several states and a few foreign countries. He writes, All of this moving around and the years away from home have led me to think of Oklahoma quite differently and far less disparagingly than I did before. So from the uninspiring motto of my home state comes this homage to it. Other states are fine. Oklahoma is okay. Some settle for less. Send us a haiku about your travels. Links are in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next up, Sarah Benson from Lonely Planet shares the allure that U.S. Route 66 still holds today, decades after opening the American imagination to the fun of a road trip. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's time for a road trip, and that means in America, I believe, Route 66, Main Street of America. We got with us Sarah Benson, who wrote the Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Route 66, it was so much fun reading in your book the history. It must have been a big deal when it was finally completed back in the 1920s. Yes, it was. I think the thing that's the most interesting about Route 66's history is how it's reflected the development of the U.S. in the 20th century and now into the 21st. It started off connecting a lot of small towns, and it was really a route that opened the way to the American West. In 1926, that was when it was officially finished and finally connected all the way from Chicago to L.A., 
And then in the 1930s and early 40s, it became a way for Okies and people escaping the Dust Bowl to make it to the orange fields and vineyards in California. And then it also became critical to the World War II effort. GIs hitchhiking westward, people going out to work in the factories, and uh, continued to come into its own in the 1960s when hippies used it as a way to get to communes out west, including in Taos. Then it eventually was bypassed by the interstate, which was the brainchild of Eisenhower, who had seen Germany's autobahns during World War II and come back and decide that America needed them as well. And eventually Route 66 was bypassed piece by piece. But that whole bypassing sort of mothballs a lot of the retro, fascinating little bits of um, Americana. So in a way, it was a good thing from a travel and a history point of view. It was. And interestingly, the day that the last town was bypassed on Route 66, which was Williams, Arizona, in 1984, was the day that all the independent preservation associations, state by state, along Route 66 really started to kick into gear. So just as things started to be torn down and disappear, people became enthusiastic about preserving them for the future generations. So the 1980s, that's when the whole um, interstate system sort of was completed, and that's the formal end of the... Uh, status of Route 66 as a major highway then. Is that right? Yes, that's when it was officially decommissioned. I guess there's two different eras. There's the pre-World War II uh, Route 66, and then there's the sort of the 1950s and the big car era, right? That's right. Along a lot of sections of Route 66, you can choose to follow different alignments. So, for example, Illinois has done a really good job of signposting the route, and you can follow the 1920s route, the 1930s route, the 1940s route, the 1950s route. You can pick and choose what you want to see. And I think what surprises most first-time travelers along Route 66 is how much is really left that's still there to see and enjoy. So this is a 2,200-mile trip from Chicago to L.A., or vice versa, if you want to do the whole Route 66. Is that right? The exact distance changes every year as roads get paved over or restored, but it's about 2,200 miles from Chicago to L.A., or in reverse. And your book narrates it. I'm talking with Sarah Benson, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. And I don't quite understand this. You said there's a 1930s route and a 1950s route. Would that be physically a different road or a different stretch of the road that, that focuses on that era? Um, they follow different stretches of the road. So, for example, outside a certain town, let's say Springfield, Illinois, in the 1920s, it went along the west side of town. And then sometime maybe in the 1930s or 40s, it switched and went over to the east side of town. But still, it follows the same general route. There are just different detours you can take depending on where the road was during that time period in our history. Now, Route 66 was Steinbeck's mother road in the Grapes of Wrath, right? That's right. He's the one who gave it that famous nickname the mother road. And uh, is that just the color of the Depression-era refugees uh, with their California bust visions? Exactly. And I think what most people associate with Route 66 from that time period is the stretches through Oklahoma and then especially running the gauntlet over the Mojave Desert into California are, I think, the most famous parts of the road from that time period. And that's where you've got museums today that take us back. Is that right? That's right. I think Oklahoma is really enthusiastic about Route 66. In fact, it has the most mileage of the Mother Road of any of the states along its length. So it's become very serious about preserving its history. It has a couple of good museums, including in Clinton, Oklahoma, where local oral historians and Route 66 enthusiasts and volunteers have all collaborated to um, present the story of the Mother Road for tourists who are tripping along it today. And is that just the Oklahoma stretch, or are they celebrating the entire 2,200 miles? They're celebrating the entire length of Route 66, but of course with a local focus on what you can see in Oklahoma. Now, I always get a lot of laughs when I tell people in California that I'm, I'm born in Barstow, and I see that there's actually a Mother Road Museum in Barstow. One more reason for me to go back to my birthplace. There is, and that museum is actually sort of a bonus museum because right next door you have a railroad museum that has a huge collection of rolling stock, and of course... Route 66 history has always been associated with the railroad because it followed the Santa Fe Railway out to California. So Barstow was always a historic desert crossroads, as I'm sure you know, and an important railway stop. And so they've combined the railway museum, the Western America Railway Museum, and a Route 66 Mother Road Museum in the same spot in Barstow. Wow. I didn't realize that there was a connection with the railways along with the uh, great uh, the Mother Road out to the west. Any tourist who spends more than a day on Route 66 starts to realize it because all the vintage motels that they want to stay in um, back up alongside the railroad track. So people end up getting not quite the peaceful night's sleep they imagined on Route 66 in some stretches. 
We've got Les on the line in Littleton, Colorado. And uh, Les, I understand you grew up on old Highway 66 in Texas, right? That's right, Rick. Uh, in fact, I was born uh, in Amarillo, Texas, which is on the original route and even made the song, but uh, in St. Anthony's Hospital, which is right on the highway. Wow. <laughs> but I grew up in McLean, which is 75 miles east of Amarillo and is the location of the Texas chapter of the uh, Route 66 organization. And it also has several historic sites and museums that are of interest. Kind of unusual for a town of 800 people to have two museums and another uh, historic site. So, Les, growing up on the Texas stretch of Old Highway 66, do you have any uh, tips for people uh, exploring that, that segment of the route? Yes, they should by all means stop at the Devil's Rope Museum, which is a a barbed wire museum uh, alleged to be one of the best in the country, and also in combination with a Route 66 museum. McLean is the headquarters of the Texas chapter of the Route 66 Association, and so there's an awful lot of interest in maintaining uh, that part of American history. You know, Les, I get a, a sense that there's a, a lot of people that really have a personal interest in uh, preserving the old character of Route 66. That's true. It's, it has become of interest to a lot of people. We're always surprised to hear about the number of Europeans that uh, are traveling the United States by car and have read about uh, McLean and the Highway 66 Museum and the, the Barbed Wire Museum and also the, the first... Phillips 66 gas station that was built outside the state of Oklahoma is there, and it's been restored and is uh, an interesting place to stop. You mean you can fill up the tank as if you were back in the 50s? No, it's not in operation. It's just to look at. That would be cool. Are there any old-time gas stations still uh, that are sort of a time warp? Uh, I think there are maybe two or three that are still in operation on the old uh, 66 route right down through the middle of town. Now, the Europeans are really into this. I've got friends in Germany, you know, and they, they, they leave their uh, fancy Mercedes at home and they want to rent a big old Chevrolet to do Route 66. Right. <laughs> that part of Texas is uh, mainly cattle country. And so the Barbed Wire Museum uh, relates to the, the history of cattle ranching. And, and my family came to the area in 1898 to start a cattle ranch. Does that all make sense to you, Sarah? It does. I remember McLean distinctly. I love the Devil's Rope Museum. I have a photo um, taken in front of it with what they claim is the world's largest ball of barbed wire. And so it's kind of an unforgettable small town, of which you'll find a lot on Route 66. Just east of McLean, too. I wonder if the caller has been to Shamrock, where they've done a great job. I used to live in Shamrock for a short period. Uh, They've done such a great job of restoring that Tower Conoco station and the U-Drop-In Cafe. Um, It's this beautiful art deco structure in the middle of the prairies. It's really a landmark, and uh, they spent a long time restoring it with a lot of volunteer effort, like a lot of the sites along Route 66, and they've just done a fabulous job. West of McLean, about 10 miles, is a new rest stop, and on one side of the highway, this is I-40, there is a reproduction of the Dew Drop Inn or the the gas station in Shamrock, kind of an art deco, uh, just pretty impressive for a rest stop. Hey, Les, Sarah's job is to find good little places to eat and sleep along the way. It sounds like you're a kind of a person she'd want to tap for your local experience. Any good eating tips in this area? Absolutely. McLean has a, an area, a famous steak restaurant called the Red River Steakhouse. And it is well-known and has typical Texas ranch food. Sarah, are you taking notes? I've actually been there. They do All have right. really good steaks and catfish, too. <laughs> Excellent catfish. Good for you. Hey, Les, thanks for your call. Glad to talk to you, Rick. You bet. Bye. And we have an email from Suzanne in Scottsdale, Arizona. Suzanne says, don't miss the Grand Canyon Cafe on Route 66 in downtown Flagstaff. The chicken fried steak has been made the same for over 35 years. That's what her husband says, who's a Flagstaff native. It's the best. Sounds like some fun eating along Route 66, Sarah. Fun and very caloric, too, at the same time. It's, it's, I think one of the most fun things about a road trip along Route 66 is you get to indulge in all that sort of diner food that you had as a kid. And there's so many good spots to stop along Route 66. 
small diners that have their famous pie recipe or chicken and biscuits. And there are so many of these that there are actually a couple of Route 66 cookbooks out right now that are more like coffee table books that have photos of the restaurants, a little bit about the mom and pop history, and then, you know, of course, reveal their secret recipes, too. Yeah, we're getting emails from all sorts of people who love to pig out on Route 66. It sounds like here's a listener that writes us, When in St. Louis, you must stop at Ted Drew's restaurant on Route 66. Their concrete milkshake is top draw. Concrete milkshake? (laughs) Do you know that? I do. I've been to Ted Drew's. I'm actually from the Midwest, and I'd been there as a kid before I even started researching Route 66. And he makes frozen custard, which is denser than regular ice cream, and that's where the name the concrete milkshake comes from. But um, in summer in St. Louis, people will line up for a quarter mile, you know, around the block and beyond just to sample some of this. And it's been on Route 66 for over 50 years. Now, I am really enjoying my discussion with Sarah Benson, You write the Lonely Planet guidebook to Route 66. What a wonderful gig. I mean, you got this ribbon, this cultural ribbon going from Chicago to L.A., 2,200 miles, and it sounds like you know every little little nook and cranny on this list. You drove 7,000 miles in your last research trip? I did, and I think the reason why I first became interested in Route 66 is I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I'm from Chicago. So when I was driving this, I was always staying at my grandmother's house in Chicago. So for me, it was more like the grandmother road instead of the mother road. Uh (laughs) But um, it was always good to go home at the end of a long trip. But every time I drive it, even now, I find new spots because Route 66 isn't static. It's always changing, and I think that's what makes it one of the most interesting things to research. Now, if you wanted to get into the 1930s, the Depression-era Route 66 lore, uh, would the Grapes of Wrath, would that be your best uh, sort of primer, or what would you read to get into the mood for that? Well, actually, one of the most interesting books that you can buy, I would I would definitely recommend um, Grapes of Wrath to get sort of the social context of the road. But another thing you can do is um, the original Route 66 guidebook is available in a reprint edition. And so you can actually follow. um, It was researched in between 1926 and 1931. So you can actually use that book as you drive along Route 66 in companion with a more contemporary guide. And it helps you look for um, sort of like a treasure hunt or a scavenger hunt to find those historic gems along the way that you can now see the ruins of today that the author of the original Route 66 guidebook was writing about for the first time just after the road opened. Wonderful. Now, Sarah, I know we're uh, talking about your Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66, but it sounds fascinating to have the original Route 66 guidebook. What's the name of it again, and and, uh, where would you find it? The name is just Route 66, and the author is Jack Rittenhouse. And you can either order it from the University of New Mexico Press or it even better, support the local businesses along Route 66 because almost all of them Uh, sell this retro reprint guidebook, including at the national park sites along the way. I'm speaking with Sarah Benson, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. Sarah, on your last trip, what was your favorite discovery? On my last trip along Route 66, it was just a short two-state trip. And I, for the first time, I went to Acoma Pueblo, which is one of the many Native American sites along Route 66. And it's the oldest continuously inhabited Pueblo in North America. And we took a tour with a local tribal guide. And uh, that was really fascinating. It brought together the Native American history along the road and also the natural beauty. So if you're looking for Native American history, where would you want to be particularly attentive as you do the trip? In sections of New Mexico and Arizona, especially between, I would say, between Albuquerque and the Grand Canyon, there are a lot of national park sites and tribal lands. Part of the joy of traveling along Route 66 is taking detours wherever it strikes your fancy. The whole trip is a much slower pace than the typical American vacation. So there's plenty of time to detour to ancestral Puebloan sites or Anasazi sites, or even, like I said, at Acoma Pueblo, Sky City, see the tribes and interact and learn about how they live today. Now, do you get a sense that this is just, um, there's a lot of touristy kind of cliches going on here, or do you actually meet some characters? Do you walk into their little mom-and-pop diner or something, and you feel like you've really connected with uh, a little out-of-the-way corner of America? There are so many characters along Route 66, and I think that is one of the most fun aspects. I mean, it hits some of the major tourist attractions. Um, In the western U.S., it goes right by the Grand Canyon. But the things that you remember are sort of those towns that have been forgotten and left by the wayside. And you meet the barber or the diner owner that's been there for 60, 70 years and can tell you about when they were a kid growing up on Route 66. And for me, that's 
more memorable than some of the megastar attractions along the road. And it sounds like there's kind of a Route 66 pride, a kind of solidarity among people who uh, have long been there, who've lived their lives on this uh, mother road of America. Definitely. I think that's why the historic preservation associations have so much participation. There's also a solidarity among tourists because even though Route 66 is growing in popularity in terms of tourism every year, it's still an unusual road trip to take. And in some places, it's hard to even find the road. So you have to have an intrepid sense of adventure. I think that when you see another person traveling on Route 66, I mean, there's no other reason to be a tourist in some of these towns. It promotes a real sense of pride and fun among the people who choose to take a road trip on Route 66. I've been speaking with Sarah Benson, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. Sarah, 2,200 miles, Chicago to Los Angeles, America's mother road. There's a world of places that you can explore and side trips, too. Tell me one place you just got to have as a must-stop on your Route 66 experience. For me, I never fail to stop overnight at the Wigwam Motel in Holbrook, Arizona. It's one of the few left in America. You actually sleep inside a concrete teepee, um, and you have your own little motor court. You get to park your car next to a classic car and then go to a diner afterwards. And I think that's a real slice of classic Route 66 Americana. I'm there. Thanks so much. We're getting our kicks on Route 66. Definitely. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section of our website. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again to our audio archives, and find links to podcast features. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Cronin, Ashley Southwick, and Sonia Grosset, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan and at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for their help today. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton, at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Get your kicks on Route 66.